Dunkin' cold coffee can be brewed at home in your Keurig coffee maker with Dunkin' cold K-cup pods. Just brew it hot over ice and enjoy flavor that's crafted to serve cold. The home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Tune in to For the Ages, the New York Historical Society's fascinating podcast on the rich and complex history of the United States. Join host David M. Rubenstein for a two-part look into the life and times of John Quincy Adams. Adams was the son of a founding father, with a political career that lasted until his death in 1848. He was also one of the last links between the founding generation and the United States of the 19th century. In this special two-part conversation, the author of John Quincy Adams' Militant Spirit, James Traub, joins host David M. Rubenstein to explore the origin of Adams' political career, bridging a connection between his childhood and college years to the start of his career in diplomacy against the backdrop of his father's presidency. And in part two, Traub discusses Adams' ascendance to the White House, his numerous achievements and failures in office, his stewardship of American foreign policy, and his continuous dedication to a code of ethics beyond the desire for re-election. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. The Bowery Boys episode 426... Behind the Domino Sign, Brooklyn's Bittersweet Empire. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're looking at the story behind a very famous sign on the Brooklyn waterfront, which, after having disappeared for several years, has made a, a sort of reappearance. Yes, Domino Sugar, a new version of a sign that graced the waterfront for decades. Now, today you might have Domino Sugar in your cupboard. Tom, I recently took up baking as a hobby and oh. actually used a box or two uh, to make a very decadent cake a couple weeks ago. A box or two? That must have been a, de- a decadent <laughs> yes. cake. But the story behind that sign and your cake, Greg, can mm-hmm. be traced back through more than 200 years of New York City history. The sugar trade was one of the most important industries in New York, and for many decades, if you used sugar to make anything, you were probably using sugar that had been refined in New York, and more specifically, in Brooklyn, which became the international center of sugar manufacturing during the Gilded Age. Sugar helped to build New York. Thousands and thousands of New Yorkers were employed in sugar houses and refineries. And of all the sugar makers, there was one name which stood above the rest. Willy Wonka? (laughs) No, Tom. In this world of pure imagination, (laughs) the name actually is Havemeyer. 
Henry Havemeyer and the Sugar Factory. <laughs> Except this was no musical fantasia, folks. This no, was, oh, no, there were no. no Oompa Loompas here. The Havemeyers were America's leading sugar titans. And by the 1850s, they had moved their empire to the Brooklyn waterfront, to Williamsburg. Their massive refinery there really helped establish the industrial nature of Williamsburg. And it led to a, a rush of sugar manufacturers coming to Brooklyn, most of which would then be absorbed into the Havemeyer's operation here. Mm-hmm. After today's show, we hope you'll reflect upon the profound and difficult story of sugar. Not to you know taint your love of Oreos or anything like that. No. In fact, um, go ahead and eat some ice cream while you listen today. Or better yet, grab a cup of sweetened coffee. We'll tell you more about that later. But this entire story will pull back to that waterfront, to Brooklyn, and that sign, that new sign hanging upon the old refinery, but a place that has been drastically transformed. So join us as we look at the old sugar houses of old, at the Havemeyer family, at New York's industrial history, and more. A look behind the domino sign. So before we get to the story of the Havemeyers and Domino Sugar, can we just cover a couple basics here? Sure. Sugar basics? Like, you want me to get granular, Greg? (laughs) Yes, because this whole story is built upon sugar, which we don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about today. No. It's kind of like salt, right? Or, Or pepper, It's just kind of there, right? In a cup or in a bag. But it wasn't always so readily available or inexpensive. No. For a long time, sugar was a delicacy. And it's ancient. It's believed that sweet juice was first extracted from sugarcane around 4,000 BC in Southeast Asia. Although it wouldn't be refined until about 2,500 years ago in India. And then during the Middle Ages, during Arab rule in Southern Europe, the sugar production process was really improved in Southern Italy and in Spain. And sugar started to gain more widespread popularity throughout Europe. Although it remained super labor-intensive to make, and it was, it was very expensive to produce and buy, it starts to become a little more mainstream in the 1450s, when sugarcane began to be grown on the island of Madeira and the Canary Islands, and then the Portuguese started growing it off in Brazil, all of them, by the way, using slave labor. And then during the 16th and 17th centuries, European colonial powers began growing sugarcane on their islands throughout the Caribbean, also using enslaved labor. And so by the 1700s, pretty much, I think it's safe to say that Europeans were more or less hooked on sugar. Yes, during the 1700s, sugar became cheaper and really started to transform cuisines. For example, according to the author Clive Ponting, from 1710 to 1770, the sugar consumption of the British population quintupled. That's a five-fold increase in Mm. 60 years. 
and it was really the same story throughout Europe, sugar consumption was nine times higher by 1850 than it had been back in 1700. And as you noted, the production of this, let's face it, unnecessary, even detrimental food product, but one that we've grown to love, did result in the enslavement of millions of Africans. Yes, millions from the 1500s through the 1800s. Approximately 12 million people were enslaved and sent from Africa to North and South America, and nearly 10 million of them were sent to Brazil and to the Caribbean, where many were forced to cultivate sugar. Living and working conditions on these plantations were horrific, and life expectancies were incredibly short. And that reality is very much linked to New York's history, right? Because New York's economy benefited from this new European craving for sugar, as much of the sugar was ultimately refined here in New York. And that then increased popularity then led to the need for more plantations and, you know, by extension, more enslaved laborers. And some of those enslaved laborers would even be sold at slave auctions here in New York in that colonial period. Yeah, the expansion of Caribbean and South American sugar plantations, right, in the late 1700s meant that more sugar and other things and even people would be traded here in New York City. Mike Wallace and Edwin Burroughs write in Gotham that by the 1720s, half the ships in New York Harbor were either coming from or going to the Caribbean. And that, quote, by the early 1760s, New York merchants were shipping over 400,000 pounds worth of bread, flour, wheat, and livestock to the islands every year. Their ships returned with valuable cargoes of mahogany, slaves, raw sugar, rum, molasses, and bills of exchange that helped finance imports of manufactured goods from Great Britain. So sugar was a vital part of the city's booming trade. And New York would receive these shipments of Caribbean sugar and then refine it and then ship it off to Europe. Yes, we know that Nicholas Bayard had set up a sugar refinery down by City Hall in 1730. And he would be joined by many other old Knickerbocker names, Greg, like the Roosevelts and the Rhinelanders and the Livingstons. All sugar refiners. Mm -hmm. And refining sugar was not easy. This was a truly specialized craft. Not everybody could just jump into sugar refining. Oh, no, you couldn't just like look it up on YouTube back then. No, they had to, <laughs> they had to bring over experts from Europe, you know, specialists who really knew how to take the raw brown sugar from the plantations and transform it into white crystals that you would actually want to, you know, eat and or maybe even more importantly, show off in your home, right? This was kind of a status symbol. It could have been sugar loaves or, or lumps, oh. which mm -hmm. <laughs> loaves and lumps, we will get into that later. <laughs> and as we just heard in that uh, passage from the book Gotham, other merchants were buying molasses, which is a byproduct of the refining process, and they would transform that into rum, which, needless to say, was also a pretty hot seller by this also time. Tr transformative to the city's oh, yes. economy. 
So, so yes, as the sugar market then developed during the 1700s, larger and larger sugar houses went up around New York. By the 1780s, there were eight refineries in the city. These were mostly, you know, large multi-storied factories and warehouses. And many actually, like those that were owned by the Rhinelanders and the Van Cortlands, had actually been used during the Revolutionary War as prisons for captured American soldiers. Mm. And we talked a little bit about that in our evacuation day show from a few months ago. But Mm -hmm. yeah, these were large structures, the largest in New York, actually. You know, they needed a lot of room for sugar to dry in. They had floors, just like large, large floors of drying sugar loaves. Sugar loaves. And one of these refineries was the Seaman Sugar House down on Pine Street, which in 1799 was searching for a new sugar house manager, right? Somebody with that specialized skill. They heard about a 29-year-old German sugar engineer named William Havemeyer, who was working in London and was open, you know, for relocation to New York City. And so they brought him over to run the plant. And two years later, in 1801, William reached out to his younger brother, Frederick, who was also a sugar refiner, to come join him in New York City. And the brothers then would manage the Seaman Sugar House for a few years, up until 1807, when they opened their own sugar refinery on Bud Street, which would later be renamed Van Dam Street. They would call their new business the Havemeyer Brothers Sugar Refinery. And they'd start rather small. They'd have just a handful of employees. And they lived right there in the back. They, they had rooms there for both William's family and Frederick's family. And this was a start of a sort of sugar dynasty here mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, they, they had lots of children. And some of those children were expected to enter the sugar business and take over at some point. They were, yeah. Both William and Frederick had a son who would then train as an apprentice in order to one day take over. Yeah. And to make matters, I I guess, (laughs) easier for us to remember today, they had named their respective sons after themselves. So William's son was William, and Frederick's son was Frederick. (laughs) Can I add that William's middle name was also Frederick? (laughs) Right, so it was I didn't William put Frederick. that detail in just because <laughs> it's Sorry. one Frederick too many. But both of these boys then studied at Columbia. Um, and they were both apprentices at the refinery. And in 1828, when their fathers retired, they both took over the firm. And it's worth situating us here on the New York City timeline. They took over in 1828. Mm-hmm. That is just three years after the Erie Canal opened. So, you know, that the floodgates opened, the economy is booming, and the population would soon be booming. The, yeah, and the sugar consumption is booming. And their operation was, was growing. But it still wasn't huge. According to Jeffrey Cobb in his book, The Rise and Fall of the Sugar King, a history of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, 1844 to 1909, the Havemeyers, here in the late 1820s, employed 12 men, and annually produced about 100,000 pounds of sugar. 
That does sound like a lot. 100,000 pounds of sugar. 100,000 pounds. It is a drop in the teacup compared to what's about to come. And up until now, the production process hadn't really changed that much, you know, from what it had been almost 100 years ago. Are you able to describe briefly, I know this is out of our wheelhouse, but can you describe how sugar was being refined at this time? I think I'll let Jeffrey Cobb do that. Remember that the refineries were receiving this raw sugar right from the plantations, the shipments. Then, quote, the first step was to place the raw sugar into a kettle and melt in a white lime solution that would neutralize the impurities and prevent fermentation. They then filtered it with bags to try to remove as much of the foreign matter as they could from the raw sugar. The solution was further cleared with bullock's blood, albumin, and clay. Finally, the mixture was reboiled until it crystallized in a conical-shaped sphere known as a sugar loaf, unquote. And then these loaves, Greg, could be ground down into crystals or chopped off into lumps. Got that? Uh, did you say bullock's blood? Excuse me, what? (laughs) Yes, bullocks, as in young male cows, usually castrated. Okay, and this blood was used to purify sugar. Got it. I know. (laughs) I think. This is starting to sound very medieval. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost like an episode of Bewitched. It's like a witch's (laughs) potion. Hey, it works. I have newt, I have newt, (laughs) bullocks blood. Right, newts. They're just missing the newts. (laughs) Well, that's why, I mean, that's why, you know, the process was so secretive. These were closely held recipes. But times were changing. You know, already by the 1820s, European sugar refineries were employing steam power to produce sugar much more efficiently. All that melting and purifying, you know, could be done faster with steam. At first, New York's sugar producers kind of shrugged off that new technology. But in 1831, one of Havemeyer's competitors, in fact, the the largest sugar refiner in New York, the RL&A Stewart Company, operated by the brothers Robert and Alexander Stewart, they decided to invest in this new steam technology. And according to an off-sighted, off-repeated anecdote, the Stuarts were literally hauling the enormous new steam engine into their Greenwich Street factory on a summer day in 1831 when who should walk up the street but Frederick Havemeyer? Oh, that's the Frederick Jr., the second, the second <laughs> right. one, the younger one. Okay. Right, Frederick, the son of Frederick. And according to Joy Santlofer in her book, Food City, Four Centuries of Food Making in New York, As Frederick witnessed his competitor's refinery, you know, being outfitted with this new fancy steam engine, quote, he became agitated, grabbed Alexander by the arm, and bellowed, don't do it, it will ruin you. What a a dramatic reaction. He might have believed that, or maybe he knew that steam was the future, and he was probably afraid that, you know, he was going to have to upgrade his family's operation itself. Which is precisely what happened, right? Because it, it turned out that the Stewart's production process, 
became much faster, much more efficient. And actually, as a bonus, their sugar was actually pure. It was more free of impurities. It was now brighter. It was whiter. Brighter than sugar made with bullock's blood? (laughs) Or were (laughs) they still using bullock's? They were still using that? (laughs) Yes, they were still using the bullock's blood, um, even with the steam. But in fact, they had never used so much of it because they were producing so much more sugar. I mean, every bullock in town was running for their life. (laughs) Oh, God, no. (laughs) But there was a new wrinkle because using steam actually stained the sugar and the stains could only be taken out by something called bone char, which, which is made from cow and pig bones. All right. This is not turning out to be a very appetizing episode. I hope no one is eating right now. <laughs> surprising. Surprising given the subject. Yes, I will stop there. Well, let's just say that bone char, I mean, it led to a whole market for salvaged bones, you know, and children would then be, you know, we're picking through garbage heaps, getting bones and selling it for pennies, all of which would then ultimately be resold to these refiners and, you know, help produce sparkling white sugar. But the future would look very bright for the Havemeyers, and they would soon take their refinery full steam ahead and across the river. We'll follow the Havemeyers to Williamsburg after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, 
the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Did you know that the bold, smooth taste of Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed in your Keurig coffee maker and enjoyed at home? Dunkin's Cold K-Cup Pods were crafted to be brewed hot and enjoyed cold. And of course, they're packed with the Dunkin' flavor you crave. Brew over ice and sip in seconds. Because the home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. By the 1840s, the cousins William and Frederick Jr., (laughs) both juniors, who were both in their 30s, had become so successful in the business of sugar refining that they did something unthinkable for most of us today. They left the family business to their younger siblings and then promptly retired. Wow, I'm I'm jealous. But I'm also assuming that retiring uh, back in the 1840s meant something different than it does today. They didn't just like move to Boca and take a pickleball. <laughs> no, uh, neither Boca Raton nor pickleball existed in the 1840s, so that was not done. Um, they retired from sugar, but not necessarily from public life. Cousin William began a career in local politics, latched on to the Democratic political machine Tammany Hall, and in 1845, he became the mayor of New York City for a single year. That's what they did back then. Then again in 1848, and then, believe it or not, a final term in 1871. And William Havemeyer was, you know, he was a rather influential and fiery person in New York City politics throughout the mid-19th century. But by that time, I mean, his story then ceases to have much to do with sugar, right? Right. But what about his cousin, Frederick? Well, like many successful business people of the age, he didn't stay retired. For many years, he traveled through Europe, in particular England and Germany, where he studied up on the latest innovations of sugar refining. The family business... (laughs) I'm sorry, even while retired, he was still working. (laughs) Yeah, he couldn't get sugar out of his blood like so many of us. The family business on Van Damme you know, as you inferred, was stuck using old world methods of refining. But during his travels, Frederick saw the Industrial Revolution in its full glory and saw how steam power was revolutionizing the business. And I would say it's actually because of steam or the accommodation of its machinery that, believe it or not, the Havemeyers eventually moved the sugar business out of New York to Long Island. And more precisely, to the Brooklyn waterfront. Yes. But but why exactly did they move there? Couldn't they use steam power in Manhattan? I mean, yes, but steam-operated machines would be able to produce a far greater amount of sugar, a hundredfold than what they were making, or even more. But this amount of steam also required a huge amount of coal, Of course, not to mention that the mass sugar that they would produce would require easier access to transport and get it out of their warehouses. 
And so where was that old Havemeyer sugar refinery? It was on Bud Street, mm-hmm. Van Damme Street. Mm-hmm. Van Damme between Hudson and Greenwich, specifically. Yeah. So for those who know that area, you know, it's where Hudson Square is today. It's kind of near the Ear Inn, one mm. of our favorites. Yeah. But at this time, that was not on the waterfront. If they were going to expand, they would have to have shore access. The entire Havemeyer business hinged upon this upgrade. And so in 1856, following the death of his younger brother, Dietrich, Frederick Havemeyer, now aged 50, returned to the family business. He was now unretired. (laughs) Yes, and devised a plan to move the entire operation to the Brooklyn waterfront. Which was a very interesting place in the 1850s, um, as you discussed in your Brooklyn Navy Yard show last year. Yeah, that Federal Navy Yard, where military ships were built and refitted, was a bit of a pioneer on the Brooklyn waterfront. You know, that opened in the early 1800s and is located just south of where Havemeyer would plant his sugar refinery. Many industrial concerns were looking to move out of New York, which was getting really overcrowded, to the Brooklyn waterfront in the 1850s, a great many to where the neighborhoods of Williamsburg and Greenpoint are today, although it's the whole waterfront. By 1856, these places were a part of the greater city of Brooklyn in an area commonly known then as the Eastern District. But today we know them as Williamsburg and Greenpoint. And it was here at Kent Avenue and South 3rd Street that Havemeyer opened his new refinery. Here on the Brooklyn waterfront, he finally had space to grow. From this spot, the Havemeyers would lead and then dominate sugar production in the United States and would even direct the country's growing taste for sugar, in fact. The city of Brooklyn, for you know, this was an independent city, in the 19th century, Brooklyn would become the center of American sugar production. And they did so at a time when the production of sugarcane itself was changing. Now, as I said earlier, plantations in South America and in the Caribbean were shipping their sugarcane to northern refineries like the Havemeyers here in New York. Mm-hmm. But there were also domestic producers of sugarcane. By the 1850s, the center of cane production in the United States was in Louisiana, which also used enslaved labor. One of the greatest pre-Civil War memoirs from 1853, I think one that many people know thanks to a certain film, is the book 12 Years a Slave by Solomon Northrup. And he goes into great detail about his enslavement on a sugarcane plantation in Louisiana. The American Civil War, of course, ended this dominance, or at least its reliance on slave labor. For American manufacturers, however, there was another rising source of sugarcane by this time, and that was in Cuba. And Cuba was a colony of Spain at the time, and slavery would continue to be legal there for many years, right, after it had been outlawed elsewhere in the Caribbean and in the U.S. 
Cuba's economy was so entwined with sugar production that slavery was only eradicated through a very long, gradual emancipation process that ended in 1886. But with the end of slavery here came surprisingly an even greater expansion of the Cuban sugar industry, funded largely by American interests. And this relationship will continue through most of our show today in the background. For more information on the relationship between Cuba and the United States, I urge you to check out the Pulitzer Prize winning book by Ada Ferrer, Cuba, an American Story, which carries this history into the 20th century and to the present day. The necessities of Havemeyer and the businesses which fueled Brooklyn's economy had national and even geopolitical implications. And even into the early 1890s, Cuba remained the world's leading sugar producer, and most of it headed to the United States. And was most of that raw sugar from Cuba then shipped to the New York area? Yeah, to Havemeyer's refinery and many, many more. By the 1870s, Brooklyn had become the greatest sugar manufacturing city in the world, and the Brooklyn waterfront was soon lined with Havemeyer's competitors. They were all benefiting from a culinary sea change, a moment when sugar was becoming a staple ingredient, a commodity, a necessity used in a wide range of mass-produced food, like obviously candy, chewing gum, ice cream, eventually fountain sodas, and even medications. Yeah. I mean, what is what is cough syrup, right, without sugar? It's nasty. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no that's one what wants it is. It. <laughs> and new inventions came along during the Gilded Age, the freezer, the refrigerator, most notably, which diversified home cooking and baking. As author Elizabeth Abbott points out in her book, Sugar, A Bittersweet History, there's another underappreciated innovation. Quote, the 1858 invention of the mason jar increased the demand mm. for white sugar. The jar enabled women to preserve fruits and vegetables that they could serve year-round. Because canning required white sugar, it too contributed to the large increase in its consumption, unquote. There was a sugar rush, Greg, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, of consumption. How were then the Havemeyers able to stay ahead of their competitors? Well, lots of ways. Uh, first and foremost, we should say they, they had their reputation, their political connections, and there were, by this time, a lot of Havemeyers, sons, cousins. Some of these men would go on to lead the company, including Frederick's sons, Theodore, and Henry, known as Harry, whom we'll get to in a moment. They also had a series of partners over the years, including in 1862, Frederick's son-in-law, Joseph Elder. In fact, the firm would then be known as Havemeyer and Elder. It's a little confusing. Elder doesn't mean like an elder man, like it's like a father. <laughs> no, this elder is actually a son-in-law. I got it. <laughs> but wait, this wouldn't be the only marital link 
uh, between these families. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's the Gilded Age after all. I mean, families would marry a few times between themselves. <laughs> yes, yes. The Havemeyers built themselves quite a kingdom here on the banks of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. By the early 1880s, the refinery had grown so large and prominent that it was known colloquially as the Yellow Sugar House. Hmm, and that color yellow might just pop up on some future packaging. Mm -hmm. So could you describe this place, this yellow sugar house? What would we see if we had, say, sailed past that refinery? Well, according to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, quote, in securing a waterfront for their operations, the refiners affect a great economy for not only do they ship the sugar direct on steamers and freight cars, but the raw material is brought to their door from Brazil, Manila, Hawaii, Egypt, and Java, and poured into their melting pans after a single handling, hardly 30 steps from the wharf where they landed, unquote. And it was more than men. There were donkeys, dozens of donkeys, which hauled the sugar from the wharf up to the refinery doors. So this kingdom of sugar sounds like quite a sophisticated operation, right? I mean, at least compared to their old place over on Van Damme Street. Yes. The process of turning raw sugar into crystallized granular sugar was a grueling, multi-step process that took about eight hours from the time it was taken from the wharf to its final granulization process, which used tons of coal, millions of gallons of East River water, and thousands of men working day and night. From this moment and for many decades on, the streets of Williamsburg would be pungent with a dark, syrupy, industrial smell. Ew. I wonder if that smell bothered the Havemeyers. Wait, did they actually live in Brooklyn? Would they have noticed? Well, I must say that by this point, there are dozens of Havemeyers, and I didn't track down every single one of them. But for the most part, actually, the Havemeyers lived in New York. Frederick Havemeyer and his large family lived on 14th Street near Union Square for a time in the 1850s. And then in the following decade, Frederick then converted a summer house that he had purchased that was out in Throg's Neck, converted it then into a permanent grand estate built in the French Second Empire style, an estate called Beau Rivage. Oh. Wait, did you say up in Throg's Neck? Like, up in the Bronx? Yes, uh, well, it was just Westchester County then. But yes, the peninsula of Throg's Neck, today the site of the Bronx-Whitestone Bridge, and of course, the Throg's Neck Bridge, was the location of Frederick Havemeyer's grand estate. Wow. And I guess from there, Frederick could simply sail down to work, right? He could just take the family <laughs> yacht down to the refinery. Yeah, Frederick and even some of his sons who grew up there. By the 1880s, this was basically a Brooklyn industrial version of the TV show Succession. For, you know, Frederick had four sons. And there was even None a named cousin Greg or Tom. Not there was no Tom or Greg, <laughs> but there but there was a cousin or two, and they were all vying to be the new head of the sugar business. The oldest son, Theodore, was in fact deeply involved with the company in the late 1860s. But in the end, it would prove to actually be the youngest son, 
Harry, who would lead the company during its most ambitious decades yet. And after a terrible tragedy, which threatened to not only tank the Havemeyer fortunes, but to stall the entire American sugar trade. From the January 10th, 1882 front page of the New York Times, quote, Havemeyer's immense sugar refinery was, with its valuable contents, entirely destroyed by fire late yesterday afternoon. Nothing seemed powerful enough to stem the raging tide of fire, which rose steadily from floor to floor until great jets of flame sprang out of the countless windows in the nine stories of the refinery. In addition to the many hundreds of barrels of sugar stored on the various floors, the building was filled with heavy and costly machinery which constantly broke through the burning floors and went crashing down to lie in shapeless masses under the ruins. The loss is estimated at $1.5 million. 1,200 men are thrown out of employment, unquote. And just like that, in the winter of 1882, the Havemeyer refinery was gone. Its replacement for they would rebuild, would cost $7 million, and Frederick Havemeyer would have to sell his lavish home, Beau Rivage, to help finance its construction. But that new factory would secure the Havemeyer's place as America's leading sugar dynasty, and the new head of this dynasty, Harry Havemeyer, would become one of America's most ruthless Gilded Age titans. We'll get to the fate of Brooklyn's bittersweet empire after this. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold Coffee in the roasted coffee aisle. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. So you left us with the Havemeyer's sugar empire going up in flames in 1882. But the family was not defeated. From Frederick on down, they decided to build back even bigger, and this time to make it truly fireproof, um, and using even more modern refining technologies, right? It would be the most modern facility in the world. They were going all in to make this successful. How long did it take to build? A year and a half, 18 months, during which time sugar prices would actually rise around the country because suddenly there was less sugar on the market. Well, and then just to make it 
even worse for them and to add to the pressure, his competition actually benefited from them being taken out of business, you know, for a year and a half. Which must have left a bitter taste, yes. Mm -hmm. But actually, 18 months really wasn't that long when you consider how massive their new refinery would be. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle proclaimed on its front page on, on July 30th, 1883, shortly before this new structure opened, colossal is a headline. One word, colossal. Quote, among the great industries of the Eastern District, sugar refining ranks foremost. And among the great establishments of the world for the refining of that article, the new one, now nearly completed for Mr. Theodore Havemeyer at 1st and South 3rd Streets, stands first. The building, or buildings rather, for there are two of them, a refinery proper and a filtering house, are the largest of the kind on the face of the globe, and when supplied with all the machinery and in full operation, will have by far the largest capacity of any refinery on either continent. Wow. So the Havemeyers have built here in Brooklyn the largest sugar refinery in the world. And it wasn't just one building. It was basically, it would eventually be an entire complex. Right, yes. On the waterfront was the new 10-story refinery, right? And a 13-story filtering house. And then on the ruins of the old refinery, they had erected a six-story warehouse. But there was also another seven-story refinery and another warehouse and a machine house and other buildings. Three of the buildings would actually be connected on upper floors by bridges. And, um, you know, add to that, they had their own railroad depot. It goes on and on. And so this new refinery could produce enormous quantities of sugar daily. Yes, an unbelievable 3 million pounds of sugar per day. I don't even know how to process that amount of sugar. And then <laughs> Luckily, store- Harry Havemeyer did know how to process <laughs> they, they, that. Yes, I, it's unbelievable. And then, so they stored it in barrels that they mm-hmm. made themselves, by the way. They had a cooperage on yep. site. And then they loaded the barrels onto railroad cars at their own depot? That's right, which was run by the Erie Railroad. And then the Eagle wrote in their article, quote, trains are taken to and brought back from Jersey City on barge floats several times during the day. <laughs> wow, riding the sugar train. <laughs> yeah, barges and barges of barrels of sugar. Three million pounds a day. But wait, but wait a minute, when they were closed for 18 months, the mm-hmm. price of sugar went up because there was just less of it, right? Right. What happened to these prices once the factory opened? Once they were open, the market was suddenly drowning in sugar, right? So obviously then, yes, the price plunged. Now, fortunately for them, you know, sugar is highly addictive. Cheaper sugar meant more people could buy it, right, and then use it every day and and develop serious sugar addictions, right, that needed to be filled with even more sugary foods. <laughs> Mountains of rotten teeth. <laughs> and why is this? Why is this starting to sound a little bit like the tobacco industry? There are actually lots of parallels, Greg, and there are even more to come. But yeah, if you're making sugar super cheap chances are that more people will eat it and develop a serious sugar habit. But 
At the same time, as a producer, you need to keep your margins profitable, right? Otherwise, you don't have a business. And that is exactly what happened. Jeffrey Cobb writes in his book, Sugar Kings, that in 1886, because of these plunging sugar prices, 18 sugar manufacturers went bankrupt. But Havemeyer was still profitable, Yes, because of their new plant here. They could process the sugar, you know, more efficiently and cheaper than their competitors. However, there was a real tension that was boiling up in the factory between the management and their thousands of employees who were really, we haven't really gone into this, but the the, the working conditions were terrible, right? The work was backbreaking. It was brutally hot it was very, very dangerous, life-threatening conditions, in fact. Many of the workers were also recently arrived immigrants. For many, this was the only job they could get or the best that they could get. And many of them were living with their families in rundown tenements that were located just nearby. Yeah, on like Kent Avenue and other areas of the Eastern District. Mm-hmm. And many of them had been out of work for that 18-month you know, factory reconstruction period. Right. And this was also a time of workers finally rising up, right, against the miserable work conditions um, that they were facing, as we have discussed on, you know, in other Gilded Age shows. And by the way, which we just saw in season two of the Gilded Age. Yeah. Right? The same thing was happening here in 1886. Workers at Havemeyer and Elder went on strike for better working conditions, including for a 10-hour workday, and obviously also for higher wages. Well, and from what I have read of the Havemeyers, reading all of these Havemeyer books, I'm assuming that the management didn't give in to this. No, they just kind of held firm, right? And they waited. They waited for their workers to basically become desperate enough to just accept their offer. The management would grant a shorter day and a very slight pay raise, but nothing like what the workers had demanded. Meanwhile, the Havemeyers faced another problem, which was that there was still too much sugar on the market. Yeah, their own efficiencies had caused the price of refined sugar to tumble. And it wasn't just happening here in the sugar industries. You know, there were technological advances in other industries, too, that were resulting in the same thing happening, right? So so Harry Havemeyer actually looked around to see what the other titans of industry were doing, you know, who were f- facing similar situations. How were they also handling issues like overproduction? Well, I mean, I think they were handling it by breaking up strikes and fighting unions. Yeah, and, the, and well, and they were also dealing with it by colluding with their own competitors, right? They were they were forming agreements, gentlemen's agreements, to set their prices and to cooperate on how much they would actually produce. They were essentially agreeing to limit their own production in order to drive up the prices and create more scarcity. It's Econ 101, Greg. Yes. Uh, and Harry would do the same thing. In 1887, when he became the president of a new company called the Sugar Refineries Company, which was otherwise known as the Sugar Trust. Now, let's let's try to keep this simple, but 
a trust is defined as an agreement that allows one person, right, the trustee or a board of directors to hold on to and manage assets or property on behalf of another party, the beneficiary. For example, we know about trust funds. But here, in the case of the Sugar Trust, a group of competing sugar companies that represented 80% of the nation's sugar refining capacity. They came together to form this new larger sugar trust. And in doing so, they handed ownership over for their individual companies to the trustee, who was, of course, Henry Havemeyer. Then he and his board of directors were now able to make management decisions for all of these participating companies. So they could set limits on production and then drive up the costs. But they could also share technology, and they could share other administrative costs, and they could also keep out those pesky unions, right? Because if everybody in the trust, in the industry, basically joined together and rejected unions together, the workers would have nowhere to go. They would be blocked. But from the outside, this doesn't look very good, right? I mean, why would consumers stand for this kind of collusion? Well, consumers wouldn't necessarily know. The Sugar Trust kept things quiet, especially when in 1888 they decided to start dropping production to two-thirds of capacity. They could, together, produce 34,000 barrels of sugar a day, but they decided to only produce 23,000. And the trust also decided to shut down some of the plants and lay off thousands of workers. And the natural effect here being that the price of sugar rose. Naturally. And by the way, not just sugar, but things that were made with sugar. Candy prices went up. Cakes became expensive. Exactly. (laughs) Cough syrup, anything. But hey, you know, the sugar trust was happy. Their collaboration really started to pay, you know, large dividends out to its investors. But investigators were already on the case, and Harry Havemeyer and the other sugar owners landed in court throughout the 1890s, and a series of lawsuits found the trust to be illegal and forced them to reorganize, which they did in 1891 as the American Sugar Refining Company. Now, that company then would be in and out of court for years. There were multiple congressional hearings held about whether or not it was an illegal monopoly, but nothing stuck. You know, the the American Sugar Refining Company would not be dissolved. Instead, it remained the dominant sugar company in America, led, as always, by the Havemeyers. Wow. So by the end of the 1890s, The Havemeyers are profoundly in control, firmly in control of the nation's largest sugar supply. Yes. And Harry, a third generation Havemeyer here, is in charge. He is known as the, quote, sugar king. Remember Harry's business partner, J. Lawrence Elder, right, which made the company into Havemeyer and Elder? Yes, the brother-in-law. Well, Back in 1870, Harry married J. Lawrence Elder's sister, Louise. 
so Jay Lawrence Elder was already his brother-in-law. Right. So then he got married to his brother-in-law's sister. They were a close family, Greg. So, so Henry Havemeyer and Louise Elder were married. Unfortunately, it was an unhappy marriage, and they didn't have any kids. And in 1882, right around the time of the fire, they divorced. But Harry didn't stay single for very long because the very next year, in 1883, he remarried, get ready, to another elder. <laughs> what? what were, were there no other people? <laughs> what, was this even legal? <laughs> Don't worry, she she was not another elder sister, but she was the niece of his first wife, Louise, and her name is Louisine. So yeah, the story could really benefit from some (laughs) additional first names. Anyhow, Louisine was um, a fascinating woman, and frankly, quite a breath of fresh air to the story. She was born into a a wealthy merchant family in New York and spent several years in Paris in the 1870s following the death of her father. And while she was in Paris in the 1870s, she became very close friends with a group of artists, including the painter Mary Cassatt, the American painter who lived in Paris, of course, was an impressionist and who befriended Louisine and became her close friend and also became her kind of artistic mentor. A mentor? So was she a painter? No, she was actually starting to collect. She was very young, right? Um, But she was already building a fine art collection while she was in Paris. And the very first piece that she bought under sort of the, you know, stewardship and encouragement of Mary Cassatt was a work by Edgar Degas. And from that impressive start, Louisine would then build an incredible art collection Um, It's a collection that would actually then, over the years, hang on the walls of the couple's beautiful mansion, a Romanesque revival mansion that was constructed at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 66th Street and completed in 1890. 66th and Fifth Avenue, which brings us back, I believe, to where Mrs. Astor moved, doesn't it? It does, indeed. Yes, Mrs. Astor would build her mansion at 65th in Fifth Avenue, so just a block down. And that would be completed six years after the Havemeyer's mansion in 1896. So in the 1890s here, by the time Brooklyn became a borough of Greater Manhattan, so we're all New York now, Havemeyer and the American Sugar Refinery Company was still very much on top, although its legal battles did allow for others to get into the game, including one player whose own empire was located not very far away. Tom, I'm talking coffee now, and I'm Mm. talking Dumbo. You're talking down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. <laughs> Which nobody called it that back then, of course. But, um, <laughs> because there was na- no Manhattan Bridge. <laughs> there was no bridge, yes. No overpass. But another name was associated with that waterfront region of Brooklyn, and that name was Arbuckle. As in Arbuckle Coffee. Now, we have mm-hmm. a show from many years ago on Dumbo, and we spoke about the Arbuckle brothers who became America's largest coffee maker in the 1890s. So I guess, yeah, you could then make your coffee in Dumbo and then sweeten it, right? Uh, make it make it light and sweet in Williamsburg. 
<laughs> yeah, well, actually, although you could also sweeten it in Dumbo because Arbuckle then became a major sugar refiner as well. Mm. The key was machinery that Arbuckle owned to automate the bagging and packaging process for his own coffee. To quote from the Dumbo Historic District Report, quote, Arbuckle was determined to expand his business into sugar using the same packaging techniques he had perfected for coffee. He purchased sugar from the Havemeyer family's Williamsburg refinery, and since he purchased large amounts of it, Arbuckle requested a discounted price from Havemeyer. However, despite extensive sales, Henry Havemeyer considered Arbuckle to be a threat and refused to grant a discount. As a result, in 1896, Arbuckle announced that he would build his own sugar refinery at the corner of J and John Streets. In response, Havemeyer's American Sugar Refining Company bought a major coffee roasting business in Toledo, Ohio. Thus began what became known as the Sugar and Coffee War. Unquote. Whoa. It's like a Dumbo versus Williamsburg melodrama, right? Yes. Over, over a sweetened cup of coffee. What a symbol of like industrial <laughs> drama that coffee is, right? The resulting battle took place over a few years, drove up the price of sugar and coffee, both of them, but it also invited in other competitors to the sugar market. And finally, let us not forget that there was an actual war going on at the same time involving American sugar interests in Cuba, a.k.a. the Spanish-American War. Oh, wow. So by the beginning of the 20th century, America was really experiencing a sugar high and a caffeine high. And it's only after all of that and the acquisition of a few more refineries in 1901 that the Havemeyers began using the name Domino Sugar, which was a, actually a pre-existing name, believe it or not. And I, I believe it's from the way that the sugar is cut and packaged. One reference in an 1888 newspaper, for instance, refers to, quote, Domino Sugar a new style cut loaf, very desirable for the tea table, unquote. There are those loaves again. <laughs> well, right, because the boxes are rectangular, right? Like really big dominoes. Yeah, so I'm not 100% certain. If any listeners have more information on the domino cut, Somebody will. please email us, plus I hope so. But just two years after they renamed themselves, just to the south of the refinery, the Williamsburg Bridge opens on December 20th, 1903. The longest suspension bridge in the world, at least until 1924, linking Williamsburg, Brooklyn to Manhattan's Lower East Side a valuable link that allows thousands of people to migrate to better living conditions in Brooklyn. And in a way, it signaled that the refinery here was really in the center of it all, right? The Havemeyers yeah. chose this section of the waterfront so that they could expand. But now here it was, right, on this incredibly busy waterway on a really congested, even antiquated industrial waterfront. Mm-hmm. 
And they remained power players in the borough for many, many decades. In fact, when they threatened to move to New Jersey in the early 1920s, uh, the city wanted them to stay and actually allowed them to expand and even permanently close down two streets you know, for that expansion. The business was still in the hands of the Habemeyers. Henry had died in 1907. His wife, Luzine, then devoted her later years to the women's suffrage movement, which, of course, she got to see come to fruition with the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. So she got the right to vote. She died in 1929 and is buried with her husband in Greenwood Cemetery. And today, of course, you can still experience the Havemeyer legacy, not only when you're baking a cake like Greg, but when you're strolling through the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Right. She bequeathed 142 paintings to the museum, and then later... Her children bequeathed about 2,000 more works to the museum, including Rembrandt's, Degas, Cassatt's, of course, and many great examples of Asian art. It's an incredible collection. The Impressionism and Post-Impressionism rooms at the Metropolitan Museum, which are some of the most popular with visitors, mm -hmm. would not be what they are today at all without, without this immense gift of art. Mm-hmm. But let's head back to the waterfront. <laughs> yeah, that was classy, a little classy detour. Um, the waterfront, the increasingly filthy, polluted waterfront. Mm -hmm. If there were th pleasant things to look at, it was the myriad electronic signs, which you know by the mid-20th century now hung upon many of the waterfront factories. Perhaps the most famous of all of them that's still with us is the Pepsi-Cola sign in Long Island City, which was placed atop that particular factory in 1940. And a Domino Sugar sign was hung upon this refinery in 1951. And it seems like they kind of got it up in the nick of time, right place in time, for there would be some problems with these signs. For instance, a few years later in 1954, when their rival, the National Sugar Refining Company, wanted to hang up a neon sign touting their adorably named Jack Frost Sugar, it was vetoed because it would have been across the water, was further north than Domino's, it would have been across the water from the about-to-be-opened United Nations headquarters. <laughs> what, were they like afraid that Jack Frost... Sugar was going to influence international <laughs> diplomacy? Well, guess who led the charge against Jack Frost? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, quote from the Daily News, quote, construction coordinator Robert Moses <laughs> sided with the UN yesterday in opposing an electric sign advertising Jack Frost sugar, saying the sign would be a nuisance to the UN and that it would have an adverse effect on the traffic of East River Drive, unquote. It, how? People would be like <laughs> slowing down to take in the Jack Frost sign? I mean, like... Too distracting. <laughs> wow, just sucking out all the fun from the story. <laughs> He would have an absolute conniption looking at any angle of the Brooklyn waterfront today if that was indeed his mindset. However, this was the least of worries for these industries along the waterfront. 
from transportation improvements from the interstate highway system to advancements in container shipping meant that most of these industries left the city for greener pastures. All of this had detrimental effects, of course, on Domino Sugar. And by 1959, there were only about 1,500 people employed at Domino Sugar. Well, uh, people were still eating sugar, of course. There were sugar substitutes as well, of course, by this time. But I take it it was just being manufactured someplace else? Yes. New York was no longer a capital of manufacturing by the mid-20th century. And by the mid-1990s here at Domino, there were only 450 people working here, and they were producing pretty much only liquid sugar. Although Domino sugar is, of course, you know, still made today, it is no longer made in Brooklyn, for the refinery at last closed in 2004. From an article in the New York Times, January 2004, headline, The Last Grain Falls at a Sugar Factory. Quote, More than 220 employees who have reliably arrived for work for years will not return on Monday, leaving fewer than two dozen workers to operate the plant at a greatly diminished level. Reduced to packaging sugar cubes and filling plastic toy figurines with cinnamon sugar until it closes permanently later this year. What will eventually become of the plant is unclear, but speculation among those standing outside it in the cold yesterday morning, shaking hands and saying goodbye, was that it would go the way of the soda factory, the knitting factory, the boot polish factory, and so many other factories whose brick shells have been transformed into housing and commercial space to make way for the gentrification rippling through Brooklyn, unquote. Well, that's a pretty accurate assessment. And that was written in 2004. I mean, by that time, you know, already in the 1990s, Williamsburg was pretty, it was an entirely different place. It, it was beginning to become transformed. And even today, I mean, much of the architecture several blocks away from the, the waterfront remains intact from you know, the late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh -huh. Although, of course, today there's quite a bit of high-end retail, right, that's fitting into these old factories and storefronts. Yeah, I just, I saw a curbed headline from last year, which read, Williamsburg is entertaining its Fifth Avenue era. And the Williamsburg waterfront is entirely transformed with today with luxury waterfront housing and public parks and not a whiff of industrial sugar. But it is extraordinary, right, that any part of the old Domino sugar factory still stands today. Yeah, some of it doesn't. But in 2007, the brick buildings constructed after the fire, that's today referred to as the Havemeyer and Elder Filter Pan and Finish House, well, these buildings were made official New York landmarks. From the report, quote, the largest buildings, sometimes collectively called the Processing House, stood steps from the East River and were visible from much of Manhattan's east side. Active day and night, these large brick structures were powerful symbols of industry in Brooklyn and the accomplishments of the Havemeyer family, unquote. Yes, but, you know, unlike many other historic structures that have been preserved and still stand today, th these are a little bit different, right? The, the Domino building 
sort of stands out alone um, yeah. in, in that area. It's sort of a stranger to everything happening around it. And I should mention something very unique, which was presented here within the abandoned Domino Sugar Factory in 2014. An incredible and incredibly large art installation by Kara Walker with an equally big title, A Subtlety or The Marvelous Sugar Baby, an homage to the unpaid and overworked artisans who have refined our sweet tastes from the cane fields to the kitchens of the new world on the occasion of the demolition of the Domino Sugar Refining Plant. Now, this work at its center featured a 35-foot by 75-foot black woman sphinx-like figure and 13 boys around her made of cast resin or cast sugar. A stunning piece. To quote from Doreen Sanfelix at Vulture, quote, A foam skeleton overlaid with 40 tons of sugar, water, and resin The Sugar Baby was the largest single piece of public art ever erected in New York City. It was also one of the biggest in another sense. The show attracted 130,000 visitors and seemed to herald a new future for public art in the city. The developer Two Trees, which underwrote much of a subtlety, broke ground on its domino project not long after, turning the site into new apartments. And the sugar baby was conceived to be wiped away too, to be almost completely destroyed following its single showing, unquote. And so, indeed, today, Two Trees Management is in the process of entirely redeveloping this area. In front of that old building sits the five-acre Domino Park, which reuses certain pieces of industrial equipment on the park here, including four large syrup tanks. Uh, There's a dog park, volleyball. There's a taco stand, Mm -hmm. delicious tacos. The park opened in 2018. I honestly, I kind of love it, if just for the views. It's got beautiful views of Manhattan. There's even a playground designed by Mark Riegelman that is designed to sort of emulate abstractly the sugar-making process. From the architect's website, quote, Regalman's playground was inspired by the history of these sugar manufacturing operations, with each portion of the playground taking children through a fun-filled representation of the sugar refining process, unquote. I, I hope that it includes some part of bone picking, right? And <laughs> bullock's blood, no. pig chasing. Not that I saw that's been replaced by tacos and volleyball. <laughs> Seriously, though, it's a, it's a fun place to go. Everyone should check it out. Now, south of the refinery is the new One Domino Square, quote, 57 and 39-story structures, which will yield 600 units with both condominiums and retail apartments, unquote. And is it just me, or do they kind of look like big bricks of sugar? Like a stack of sugar cubes, right. actually. I don't. I hope. I hope that was intentional. And finally, we have the refinery itself, the landmark building, or should I say, the exterior. For this building, the old Domino's factory is basically an exterior. It is wrapped around a fifteen-story, four hundred and sixty thousand square foot office building 
in a glass box, okay, which is set back about 15 feet from that landmarked brick exterior. So it's like wearing a shell, mm-hmm. a, a skin of the former of the former factory. And adorning the top is a 43-foot replica of the original Domino Sugar sign, returning the Domino name to the Brooklyn waterfront. It's nice to see it, you know, back in its place on the Brooklyn waterfront again, even if it does not rain over thousands of pounds of sugar. Of course, if you want to see an authentic Domino sugar sign, you'll have to go to a Domino sugar plant elsewhere. They're still making sugar, of course, and we didn't even have time today to talk about all the other major advancements, modern advancements in sugar production, or the sugar beets, or the current American sugar cane production, which is largely in the American South today. But Domino Sugar today is headquartered up in Yonkers, New York, and if you want to see a good Domino Sugar sign, a classic vintage sign that's still in operation, head to Baltimore, where a big, beautiful sign still hangs over the city. And I did want to add one more piece of historical trivia here, um, and that involves the Habermeyer's old mansion, Beau Rivage. Ah, up in Throg's Neck. Yes. It is still around, believe it or not. It was bought by the Huntington family in the 1880s. They lived there, and they called it the Homestead. And today, it's a high school called Preston High School. Like the refinery, it you know also has some interesting modern additions, but nothing too dramatic. But on our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, I'll have images of all of these things, including the Domino Factory, old and new. A big thanks to those who support the Bowery Boys on Patreon.com, where you help us produce this podcast with your small monthly donations. We greatly appreciate it. And as a thank you, we provide all kinds of extra goodies, including merchandise and access to ad-free episodes early and much, much more. Including our Patreon-only podcast called Side Streets. This episode, this week, Tom and I will be talking Williamsburg, Mm. of course, you know, our experiences there. And in fact, Tom, your brother, lived in Williamsburg in the early 1990s, mm-hmm. near the Domino Sugar Factory. Yes, and so hopefully you'll be able to share some of his experiences and things that you saw even during that period. Yes, and he always smelled like sugar. <laughs> He's a sweet guy. He's very sweet. I let you say it, Greg. That was a pitch, and you took it. <laughs> so join us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys and check out that show next week. We also encourage you to join us in the streets in small, fabulous walking tours around the city, public walking tours, or private tours for your group and organization. We have many new tours that have just been launched and are coming out at the end of this winter and early spring. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com to learn about new tours that we have of the Financial District, of Riverside Drive, a food tour of Chinatown, of course, the Gilded Age mansions of Fifth Avenue, and so many more. Join us in the streets and walk through time over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. And finally, check out the Bowery Boys website this week for information on two live book-related events that I'll be moderating this month and next at the P&T Knitwear 
bookstore on the Lower East Side and another one at the New York Historical Society. And the details of both those events will be at BoweryBoysHistory.com. And a special thanks to Kieran Gannon, who edited today's show. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Did you know that the bold, smooth taste of Dunkin' cold coffee can be brewed in your Keurig coffee maker and enjoyed at home? Dunkin's cold K-cup pods were crafted to be brewed hot and enjoyed cold. And of course, they're packed with the Dunkin' flavor you crave. Brew over ice and sip in seconds. Because the home with Dunkin' is where you want to be.